You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. Today we'll be in Hebrews chapter 4, so go ahead and turn there and we will start our time in the Word by reading God's Word. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 6 to 13. This is our third part in a four-part series on rest for the restless. Hebrews 4, starting in, our text today will start in verse 8, but we'll back up a few verses for context. So look back to verse 6. Hebrews 4, 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, that's God's rest, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for texts like this one that will hit home. We thank you for the word of God that convicts, that pierces and penetrates, that is active and alive. We pray, God, that you would use your word to work in us. May we be set apart, a holy people. May this church be honoring and bring you glory. Lord God, we lift these things up in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, the author of Hebrews has been preaching to us in chapter 3 and 4 from Psalm 95. His brief little sermonette here uh, began by reading that text in Hebrews 3, 7 to 12, and then explaining and applying this text in Hebrews 3, 13 down through 4, 13. And like any good preacher, he's gone back and forth between explaining, illustrating, and applying the text of Psalm 95. And today we come to his conclusion of Psalm 95 before he moves back to that overarching theme of Jesus is better. We've been warned two weeks back, about a restless heart. We've been called to repent and believe. And today we are charged one more time to enter into God's rest. Today is the day, my friend. You can have rest from your sins, your guilts, your fears, your vain efforts this morning. You can have rest forever, starting today. As the Bible makes abundantly clear, God's rest is available to you today. You must simply enter into it. 2,000 years ago, a group of Jews put their faith in Jesus Christ. They believed that Jesus was that long-awaited Messiah the Old Testament prophesied about. They believed he was innocent of all sin, that he suffered and died on the cross to bear a penalty for their sins. They repented of their sins and their useless attempts their useless attempts to please God. They put all their faith in Jesus Christ. 
But then this same group of Jews who had converted to Christianity came under intense pressure. When they first believed, they, their friends and family network rejected them. Out went the Jewish community, the jobs, the prosperity, the welfare of being in that Jewish caste. Soon thereafter, persecution from Caesar began. Christianity was not recognized as a religion in Roman lands. And Christians could be thrown in jail. They could be forced to recant or be killed on the spot. They could be shipped off to the Colosseums to be eaten alive by wild beasts for public entertainment. Christianity began joyfully with the great promises of rest for God's people. But as the years and perhaps decades had passed, these promises of God were losing their shiny luster and those dull allurements of the world were starting to appear, appeal again. And that's our group of Jews to whom this letter was written. Hebrews was written to this group of Jews. Our unknown author is calling this unknown local group of Jewish believers to stay the course, to not give up, to firmly plant their feet on the greatest truth ever. Jesus is better. That all the promises of Jesus are far surpassing any promise or pledge of this earth. And while peace was something for the afterlife, rest could truly be theirs that day if they would take hold of it. God's rest was theirs if they would cling to it by faith. How could they know this was true beyond a shadow of a doubt? How could they really know this? Because they were Jewish. They had God's word. They had the Old Testament. And God's word proclaimed to them and written many years prior had already promised all these things. They needed to let the word of God work on their souls. They needed to let the word of God convict them so that they stop toying with sin and enter into God's rest. Friends, that's exactly what you and I in this day and age need too. We must let the word of God convict us so that we stop toying with sin and enter into God's rest. That is the goal of Hebrews 4, 8 to 13 this morning. Let's consider our first point now, verses 8 to 10. Point number one, entry is open. Entry is open. If you're following along in the notes, that's your first fill in the blank. Entry is open. Now, heaven is like home plate in a Little League baseball game. I hope that such an illustration does not make light of God's rest, but I see a valuable picture here. Heaven is like home plate in a Little League baseball game. And if heaven is home plate, salvation is first base. For many young boys and girls, reaching just first base is a distant goal. The hardest thing in baseball is actually hitting that ball. And then once you do, you've got nine devils out there trying to get you out. <laughs> in baseball, you are never safe until you reach first base and the umpire declares, safe. And at that point, you get a nice little rest, a rest on first base. But the special thing about Little League Baseball is that it's not the child alone who works to reach first base. The child does not sign himself up for Little League. The child does not make, take himself to practices or games. The child doesn't even know the thrill of reaching first base before he's done so. All along, there is a dad who has dreamt of seeing and cheering on their child. There is a father whose own love for the game taught their kid how to catch a ball, how to swing a bat. I know we have a number of Little League dads and grandpas in this room. I know John Ecker loves Little League. He's told me a number of those stories. My own dad coached me. I'm teaching Oliver this summer how to catch and hit a ball. And it's the father who sparks interest in the game for his sons. It's the dad who drives into practices, coming home early from work, standing in blazing heat or drizzling rain. 
And when that child finally puts wood on the ball, races towards first and plants their foot on the bag and is declared safe, it is toward the father that that child looks, beaming with a smile ear to ear. And together, though apart, they bask in the sheer joy of what has been accomplished. Did you see that? My son got a hit. Salvation is like first base in a little league game. Not merely because of the toil that precedes it, but because of the satisfaction we share with our Heavenly Father when we enter into His rest. Yes, on first base, our job is not done. Heaven is still a good ways off for most of us. But at salvation, we have, we have entered the joy of our Father's rest. Look at verses 8 to 10 with me again. Verses 8 to 10. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Now there are some great truths to highlight in this text. The foremost truth is our first point. Entry is open. God's rest is open to us right now. And the author of Hebrews has been stressing this element throughout his argument. He keeps saying this kind of thing again and again. We can only assume that some of the early Jewish Christians were doubting God's rest was still open. Maybe they'd missed it. Maybe it was just when, when Jesus was here on earth. Or maybe it was available in the Old Testament times. Or maybe it was only related to Joshua and that initial group that actually entered the promised land. Perhaps this concept of rest was not something they associated with the sacrificial atonement of Jesus Christ. But the author of Hebrews says again and again, think again. That rest is still available in this day and age. And he says, if that rest had been completed under Joshua, that successor of Moses, the one who took the people into the promised land, if Joshua had brought them rest, God would not have brought rest up again. But in Psalm 95, written hundreds of years after Joshua's day, God did bring up rest again. And he points to a future day of rest. This future rest would be the rest that Jesus Christ provides. And so entry is open today. Now it's fascinating to make note of the name Joshua in verse 8. It's actually the same name for Jesus in Greek. After all, the Greek name Jesus is the equivalent of the Hebrew name Joshua, just as my name Stephen is the Spanish equivalent of Esteban. Right? Slight difference in pronunciation, but same name. So when you read this in Greek, it actually says, for if Jesus had given them rest. In fact, the King James Version, if you've got one of those, unfortunately translates the name as Jesus, which certainly can confuse us today. But a Greek reader reading this, especially a Jew, with the context of Moses here in Psalm 95 and all that, they would instantly be thinking of Joshua, the Old Testament Jesus. The context of Moses, all that points directly to there. But the convergence of matching names, I think, would have had a further effect here. They realized that in Joshua, that Old Testament name, Jesus, God's people only experienced a temporal rest. It was a temporary rest. It was not ongoing. However, in Jesus, in the New Testament Jesus, they've received a permanent rest. That's the argument here. Since the first Jesus, Joshua, did not provide God's people with permanent rest, we must instead look to Jesus Christ for that rest. And it's a rest that the text says would come another day later on. This another day comment is also fascinating. It corresponds to the word today that's been used over and over and over and over again in Hebrews 3 and 4. What is this day? Is it just a, a unique reference to a forever now 
that every day is the moment and opportunity for salvation, that we might not live to see tomorrow, so get saved today? On the one hand, yes, that's what it's pointing to, but there's more to it than that. This today, this another day in verse 8 is speaking of an epoch, an era of time. We sometimes use the phrase in English, this day and age in which we live. And that phrase day means an epoch of time or an era, a season, a long season. And and that's what's being communicated here and in the today references from earlier. Today is an era in world history in which salvation is open to all, where Jew and Gentile alike can find salvation in Jesus Christ, where all people across the globe can turn in faith and find forgiveness at the foot of the cross. Before Jesus, friends, it was a different era. Yes, they were still saved by faith alone, but you had the law in place, the sacrificial animals that temporarily covered sins and everything looking forward to this Messiah. But after Christ's resurrection, a new day and age was born. We live in a day and age where God's rest is open. The vacancy sign has been turned on, if you will. You and I can enter into God's rest. But there will come a day when this day and age will end. That neon pink no vacancy sign will be burned into the eyes of all those falling into hell. This day and age of salvation will come to an end for all people, whether it's on the deathbed or at the return of Christ. And so, yes, friends, time is short. Christ is returning soon. It will not always be called today. And that is why in Hebrews 3.13, we were told, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Tomorrow will come. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Verse 9 concludes this argument that God's rest is still open. It's still open today. It says, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And that word Sabbath rest is key. It's one word in Greek, and it appears the author of Hebrews just made it up. It is found nowhere else in the Bible or earlier Greek literature. The word is sabbatismos, which combines Sabbath and keeping and puts them into one word. And the clear idea is that of a seventh-day Sabbath rest, the one the Jews were so used to keeping in Old Testament times. So why does he use this new word here, though? Why coin this word? Why not keep using the normal word for rest that he's been using? Well, I believe it's stylistic in nature, and he's using it to appeal to his Jewish audience. He is pointing back to God's Sabbath rest that he talked about in verse 4. Back in verse 4, look back up there at verse 4. He wrote, For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. This verse, as we looked at last week, was used to explain the nature of God's rest that we enter into. It is a rest of a finished work. God rested on the seventh day, and his rest, his labor, his work was finished. So this Sabbath rest, that's what that's pointing back to, this word. And for the Jew, under the Old Testament, the Sabbath rest occurred every seven days under the law. It was a staple of their lives in the Old Testament. Now, some pastors and commentators of the the very Reformed sort at this point in the text will veer off into a long discussion on how this verse tells us the Sabbath should still be kept weekly, but on Sunday now. This is one of their key proof texts, and if you simply look at the verse, honestly, without any context in the English, we would all come to the same conclusion. I mean, look at it. It says, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Clear as day, Christians are to still hold to the Sabbath. But hold your horses. Not so fast. 
This is a long rabbit trail, and we will not follow it all the way out this morning, though it's a very important one. But I want to give a few pointers from our text to help us see this verse says we, do, we, we don't have to keep the Sabbath as Christians. First, the context is about salvation rest, not resting every seven days. That's very clear. Nowhere else are we talking about resting every seven days. It's all about salvation here. Second, the author of Hebrews appears to have coined this word for stylistic reasons to point us back to that seventh day rest of God from verse four. And verse four clearly points us to God's finished work. God's finished work. And not that every Christian should rest every seven days. The point is pointing us to God's finished work. And third, if the Old Testament requirement of keeping the Sabbath had been in place for Christians from the time of Christ's death, until writing this letter, some 30-odd years, why would the author use the word remains? What's he trying to say here? That is, why try to convince them that there remains a Sabbath rest if New Testament Christians were already having a Sabbath rest every seven days? Why try to convince them? Wouldn't he have just said, that's why we still keep the weekly Sabbath rest? No, rather, it's because no Christian had kept the Sabbath for 30 years since Christ's death that he writes, so then, there remains a Sabbath rest. It's not the beloved Jewish Sabbath of a seven-day rest, but it's now found in the finished work of Christ. It's in the finished work of Christ, not an ongoing weekly event. So yes, there is a Sabbath rest, and it's Christ's. It's Christ's. And fourth and finally, this cannot be talking about a weekly Sabbath for Christians because verse 10 explains what verse 9 means. Look at verse 10. It says, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his, case closed. That's what this is talking about here, the rest we have in Christ. Now, yes, we should come to church every seven days. We looked at that two weeks ago. The book of Hebrews talks about that all the time. There is the Lord's day, a special day for us, but it's not a law we must keep. Verse nine then talks about this, uh, this rest some more. Thanks to Jesus Christ, the church has their very own Sabbath rest. Again, not that seven days, but an eternal rest. And it's one we can enter into. It's ones you and I can enter into now. And as we looked at last week, it's a twofold rest. It's a rest from sin's guilt because the penalty has been paid by Jesus. And it's a rest from vain striving, from trying to earn salvation by our works because if Jesus had paid it all, we have nothing left to pay. Our rest is fully in Jesus Christ and what he has done. It is finished. We rest in Christ. Friend, have you entered this rest? Have you grabbed hold of eternal life through faith in Jesus' death and resurrection? You will have no rest until you do. Friend, enter this rest. Strive to enter it with all your might. While Jesus has paid it all, there is still effort to be made on your part. And that's our second point here. Effort is required. Effort is required. Look back at verse 11. Some of you are getting nervous in your seats here. Look at verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. We were just told to rest and now we're told to strive to enter it. Well, friends, there are many counterfeit religions out there today. There are so many fake and false gospels, false explanations of how to be saved. And some of them, they sound so stinking similar to the truth sometimes. The Mormons are the best at this. They've nuanced their wording about salvation so carefully and precisely in an effort to sound the same as Christ, to the Christians as they can. 
And yet, the Mormons are a demonic sect run by Satan, and its followers are frenetically thrashing around to do good works on a road to a restless hell. During June's monthly door-to-door evangelism outing, Aaliyah Deers and I unwittingly knocked on the door of a serious and staunch Mormon. He was incredibly polite and nice, not rude at all, roughly my age, had a nice wife that waved to us from the background. Uh, We learned in our conversation that like almost all Mormons, he had gone about doing uh, overseas, sharing the Mormon beliefs for a couple of years as a young guy. We began discussing salvation with him on his porch, as is our habit when we go door to door. And when we got down to brass tacks and talked about how to be saved, he was very nuanced and careful, just like we were. According to him, salvation is by grace, through faith and works. God gives you the grace needed to believe and to do the works. No, we said, that's not right. And we showed him Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which says, For by grace you have been saved, through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. He was not familiar with this verse. I've yet to meet a Mormon who is familiar with this verse. Not surprising, but he did not know this verse, even though he was very biblically literate. He actually knew his Bible quite well. He then asked Aaliyah and I the question, Don't you as Christians have to do good works after you're saved? Or can you just sin all you want and still go to heaven? good question. We responded, of course you will do good works after you're saved, but it's not in order to be saved. It's the result of being saved. But he asked, they're necessary for salvation, right? To which we responded, well, kind of, in one sense, we're not free to just go on sinning. To which he replied, then you are saved by your works, just like I am. No, yes, no, it's not of works, but you just said you have to do good works as a Christian. You can see that this is going nowhere. And I said to him, look, our good works are a proof that our hearts have been changed. We do good works by the Holy Spirit who now lives in us. Well, he says, the Holy Spirit helps me do good works too. I don't see how we're different. You are saved also by your good works. And at that point, me and him both started to get a bit angry as he was talking apples and oranges and calling them the same. And after a few more back and forth, Aaliyah thankfully stepped in and cooled us both down. And in a few minutes, he went back inside miffed, and we went away brokenhearted. He had believed a counterfeit gospel, but it sounded so close to the real thing. Now, I share that story to explain that we must tread very carefully here in verse 11. We must tread very carefully here. Counterfeit gospels and counterfeit conversions are a dime a dozen. They are everywhere. And when we come to Hebrews 4.11, it can sound very close to the Mormon or the Catholic or the Jehovah's Witness gospel. And if you could put their gospel in an equation, it would be this. Faith plus works equals salvation. Okay? Faith plus works equals salvation. You believe, you work hard, and God will grant you salvation. The faith and the works, they'd say, are all part of the grace of God. He gives you enough grace to have faith and to do good works. And so they'll agree with us. By grace, you have been saved. They'll agree with us fully. But for them, again, it's faith plus works equals salvation. And that's the big lie. Because what the Bible says, it rearranges the equation. It says faith equals salvation plus works. Faith equals salvation plus works. You believe and God grants you salvation in the indwelling Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in you gives you the desire and the ability to do good works. And this understanding is so crucial because eternal life hangs in the balance. 
Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 makes these truths abundantly clear. Go ahead and turn there. I already quoted a little bit earlier, but turn there. It's so important for us to see this. It's a key text. Maybe you have it memorized. Wonderful. But look at this with your own eyes. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Hard stop. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. He did the work. We are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you see, we are saved by faith. And even that faith is a gift from God. And it is explicitly not the result of works. So where do works come in? They come in after salvation. They are the evidence of our salvation. Verse 10 says, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. And these good works, verse 10 says, God has prepared them. He's prepared them before time even for you and me to walk in them. God has put the opportunities for good works in our lives so that we can do them as saved individuals. We do not work our way into salvation, no. But having been saved, we are given God's power and God's desires through Christ Jesus by the indwelling Holy Spirit in order to do good works. Good works are the result of our salvation, not the other way around. We are saved, we are not saved by good works. We are saved for good works. Again, faith equals salvation plus works. So when we come to Hebrews 4.11, we must note what it's not saying and what it is. It is not saying we must work hard to be saved. It cannot be saying that because it would be contradicting everything else in the Bible. What it must be saying is the same thing we saw in 2 Peter 1.10, which tells us to be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, these godly qualities he listed, you will never fall. Peter says, confirm your calling and election. Confirm your salvation, he says. Confirm your salvation by living how God wants you to live. Be obedient to God's word. And if you do, you will reveal that you are saved. These Jewish Christians from 2,000 years ago, the author of Hebrews is telling them in verse 11, you've already been saved. You've already entered God's rest in this life. Don't give up now. Strive to enter it for eternity. Don't be like the wilderness Israelites who fell away from God by their disobedience. The author of Hebrews is telling us to demonstrate our salvation by our good works, by our obedience to God's word. Again, he's not saying enter salvation by good works or obedience, but continue in it. Well, how can we say this? It's because God has prepared beforehand these good works for us to do. He's prepared them for us. And he sent his Holy Spirit to indwell us and to enable us, to give us the power to obey, to do good works. If you continue in obedience and good works, you will prove to yourself and to the watching world that you do have the Holy Spirit and you are his. But if you do not persevere, as we talked about last week, if you do not continue in good works, you will fall away and prove to yourself and the world that you are not his, that you do not have the Holy Spirit. Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Friends, 
God does not expect perfection from us, but direction. It's not about perfection, but direction. We all stumble and fall in disobedience at times, even as Christians, but true Christians get up and repent. True Christians get up and repent. And even if they should sin in the same way, many times and over a long period, they will repent and come back to the Lord. Turn over to 1 John 2. 1 John 2, there's some great key passages here, just a little bit to the right of Hebrews. Uh, there's some key passages here I want to show you. 1 John is a book written to believers so that they may know that they have eternal life. It is full of tests of genuine faith. 1 John 2, 3 through 6, gives us one of those tests. 1 John 2, 3 through 6. Look there with me. And by this we know that we have come to know him, that we're saved, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. The true believer will keep God's commandments. Friend, you and I should be striving to do that. We strive to keep God's commandments. It is the Holy Spirit that enables us, but we must strive to be obedient to God. Look down at the end of the chapter now, 1 John 2, 28. 1 John 2, 28 tells us, and now little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. We need to abide in him, or as some translations render it, remain in him. Even though we are eternally secure, nothing can snatch us out of the Father's hands. John tells us in verse 28, remain in him, abide in him. Look ahead now a little bit more into chapter three. I'm gonna read a big chunk and I'm gonna make no comment on it. The section will speak for itself. First John three, four to 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. At the beginning of World War II, the Nazis enacted Operation Bernard. The plan hatched in September 1939, and the strategy was simple. Forge massive amounts of English currency and then airdrop it over England. The German goal was to flood England's marketplace with counterfeit bills. This would weaken the British pound, drive up prices, trigger massive inflation, and ruin the English economy. 
142 experts were assembled to complete this forgery. They were former textile engineers, financial experts, and plate manufacturers. And all 142 of them shared two similarities. They were all Jewish, and they were all concentration camp prisoners. By threats and torture, these death camp detainees forged 132 million British pounds. It's a lot of money, especially back then. But thankfully, these counterfeit bills never made it to England. The prisoners turned forgers slowed down their production time effectively enough that by the time the forged money was ready, the Nazi Air Force, the Luftwaffe, uh, I don't know how to say that, but the Luftwaffe, no longer had air supremacy over England. The Royal Air Force had reclaimed the skies. England's counterfeit catastrophe was narrowly avoided. Now, no matter who you are or what your scenario, counterfeits always threaten catastrophe. Counterfeits convince you that something worthless is valuable, that what is fake is authentic, and Satan himself is the greatest forger of conversions. One of his primary goals is to make as many counterfeit Christians as he can, make as many as he can, something so close to the real thing nobody would notice, not even that counterfeit Christian. In church, there are wheat and tares, the real and the counterfeit. The counterfeits do great damage, just like a weed. They choke out the life of the real wheat. They cause problems for the gardeners, in this case, the church leadership. Counterfeit Christians create catastrophe. Yes, for the church, but most disastrously for their own souls. For their own souls. Friend, are you a wheat or a tear? Are you real or are you counterfeit? Are you striving to enter God's rest or are you a Christian couch potato? God wants each of us to examine ourselves. Paul says so in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. At the conclusion of his last letter to the church at Corinth, counterfeit Christians were on Paul's heart. And so he exhorts them in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. He goes on, test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Friend, it is right for us to examine our salvation. Has our faith resulted in salvation plus good works, plus obedience to God's word? Is it true of us that our faith equals salvation plus good works? Do you have an ongoing practice of righteousness or an ongoing practice of sin, as 1 John talked about? Maybe you aren't sure if you've entered God's rest. Maybe in examining your own life, even right now, putting yourself to the test, you're getting a D minus. You don't think you've failed entirely, but you know you can do better. You know you need to improve your walk with God, living in obedience before him. And to that I say, amen. That's what this text is all about. To convict you, to draw you closer to God, to confirm that salvation you believe you have. Friend, if you want to grow in obedience and good works, our current featured resource in the book nooks is a fine place to start. It's called Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life, and it walks you through several key elements of obedience to God, such as knowing God through the Word, studying the Word, worship, prayer, stewardship, serving, evangelizing, and much more. I highly recommend the book. But remember, doing these things in the book will not save you. Only Christ can save you. You can rest only in the finished work of Christ, not on your vain efforts and accomplishments. But if you do repent of your sins, or if you have repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ, 
Good books like this one will help you pursue the obedience to God that he expects, that he has even pre-planned for you. However, even more important than a good book is the good book, is the good book. Not only will it instruct your heart and instruct your heart in the way you should go, it'll help you see if you are counterfeit or not. The Bible is God's means for conviction, change, and salvation. God is its author, and you need to know what it says. You need to know what it says. Why? Because God's eyes are on you. God's eyes are on you. That's our third point. Eyes are on you. Eyes are on you. In our Sunday school class here at First Baptist, when we need to get the kids' attention, we loudly say, one, two, three, eyes on me, to which we've trained the kids to respond, one, two, eyes on you. Then they get quiet and they listen up. Friends, God's eyes are on you. You need to pay attention to God. How do you know what God is saying to you? We have the Bible. The Bible is the very words of God to us. Martin Luther once said, let the man who would hear God speak read Holy Scripture. God speaks to us through the Bible. We must read it and know it. Look again at verses 12 and 13. Verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Why this transition to the topic of the word of God here in chapter four? It's because the author of Hebrews just used Psalm 95, which is the word of God, to convict these Jewish Christians and us of the need to press on in obedience, the need to press on in faith. The word of God has accomplished its means. And so the author of Hebrews here in verses 12 and 13 explains why he used Psalm 95 and why he knows it will be effective in the hearts of all Christians. How does the Bible accomplish this? How does the Bible bring us to salvation and then growth in Christ? The text tells us three things, or three sets of things, rather. First, the Word of God is living and active. It's living and active. Even though it's 2,000 years old and there are differences in cultural, social, and historical settings compared to the original readers, God's Word still speaks to us today. The Holy Spirit moved through men to write it, and the Holy Spirit still uses it uses it in our hearts today. It is not a dead book. It is alive. The active nature of the Bible means it will speed to fulfill the purposes for which God has given it. God has a purpose for every word here, including the purpose for it to actively take hold of your life. In Isaiah 55, 11, God says, my word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I have sent it. The Bible is living and active, accomplishing God's purpose. What are the two main purposes, you might say? It's to save you and it's to sanctify you. God's word saves and sanctifies you. It's to make you like Christ and then make you more like Christ. 2 Timothy three fifteen and 16 says, the scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. 
the text said, they're able to make you wise for salvation. The scriptures can save you, lead you to salvation, rather. They are profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training. They can sanctify you, lead you into sanctification. You need this living and active word of God in your heart and mind. Second, the word of God is sharp and penetrating. The word of God is sharp and penetrating, verse 12 tells us. It's not just sharp like a finely crafted Roman sword that's referenced here. It is sharper than this sword. Any surgical tool our doctors and surgeons might use on patients today, whether it's a a razor-sharp scalpel or a pinpoint perfect laser, God's word is sharper. It penetrates to the innermost recesses of our beings. Friends, we cannot keep our thoughts to ourselves. We can't. God's word gets into the tightest, tightest corners of our mind, to the farthest galaxies of our thought life that we thought were forgotten about or locked away. God's word pierces and penetrates even there. Our text says it pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow. Now, some have taken this phrase beyond its intended purpose to try and explain that the soul and spirit can be divided and they are two separate entities, but that's not the point. The author of Hebrews is not picturing a sword or a knife somehow slipping between one's soul or spirit or between one's joints or bone marrow. When it comes to these two analogies, we must not split hairs here. Pardon the pun. Okay, some of you got it. Look at the end of verse 12, where the meaning of this dividing nature is explained. The sharp and penetrating word of God is discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's the point. Everything in your brain and everything in your being is visible to God because his word penetrates everything and it reaches to everything and convicts you everywhere. And thirdly, though, verse 13, the word of God is revealing and exposing It's revealing and exposing. Having actively penetrated your mind, God now flays it open. Flays it open. He reveals and exposes your every deed. He sees it all. No creature is hidden from his sight, as it says. His eyes are on you. The word naked in verse 13 is used elsewhere in the Bible of a soul without a body, of a bare kernel without its shell, and of a body without clothing. The idea is the outer layer of protection has been removed. When you stand before God and before God's word, your self-made walls of protection are gone. Whatever you have covering yourself, God strips it away. You are laid bare before a holy God. He sees everything that you think, everything that you do. The second word there exposed is a rare word in Greek. It's the root word for it is neck, and it's used elsewhere in Greek literature of a wrestler who grips the neck in a powerful way so as to bring victory. It's been speculated this word means to expose the neck as in a sacrifice of an animal of sorts. And the exposure of a neck there is a, is a good picture because God's word does expose us where we are most vulnerable. If you were to cut me with a knife, please don't. If you were to cut me with a knife anywhere in my body, I'd probably be okay unless you cut me at the neck. God's word lays us bare and exposes us where we're most vulnerable. Psalm 11, verse 4 and 5 just furthers on this concept. It says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked. But friends, none of this would matter very much if our God was just a a loving friend of ours, an accountability partner who just slaps us and says, Hey, do better next time. That's not our God. Yes, he does love us. He does love us. That's why he sent his son. 
but he's also the judge of the world. He's also the judge of us. And verse 13 ends by telling us that we are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Friends, we must give an account of our lives to God. That is a scary thought. That is a scary thought. I hate that thought. I know myself. This is an accounting phrase used to speak of someone whose balance is overdrawn and they need to settle up. They need to explain their accounts deficiencies and make things right. And friends, we must all do that for God. God sees everything in our lives and he is holding us accountable for everything. Even the very thoughts you're having right now or that you've had today, you will give an account for those. Jesus himself says something similar in Matthew 12, 36. He says, to, he says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. God sees it all, knows it all, and there will be a day of reckoning when we will stand before him. We will give an account of where we fall short. And friends, we all fall short, do we not? Romans three twenty three: for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Friend, whether you know God's word or not, you will stand before him and give account and you will fall short. But God's word is such a gift. It is such a gift. This active, penetrating exposure that it brings to our life is actually a huge blessing. God's word is a gift because it shows us God's perfect holy standard now, today. It exposes us for the charlatans we are at heart and gives us remedies to correct course today. Friend, if you do not know God's word, you will be blindsided on the day of judgment. Most people will. Actions and thoughts you did in life that you thought were just fine or maybe a little wrong, but not that big a deal. After all, I'm not hurting anyone. Those will come back and condemn you forever. But we do not have to enter God's judgment surprised and guilty. The Bible will show us our sin for what it truly is, felonies of the highest class, and it explains to us the just punishment that you and I deserve. But while the Bible gives us this bad news, that God condemns the sinner like you and me to hell, it also gives us the greatest news ever. That's why we're a church. Because in Jesus Christ, all our sins can be forgiven. His perfect sacrifice on the cross is the answer. On that cross, he shed his blood for you in your place. The damnation you deserve, he took it. He was sacrificed for all who would believe. The wrath of God was poured out on him. He took the penalty for sinners, died in their place, and then rose from the grave and conquered sin and death. And all who confess their sin and run to Jesus will be saved. The Bible tells us all that. I believe it. Do you? Do you believe this? Friend, let the word of God convict you so that you stop toying with sin and enter God's rest. There was an American apologist who once went to the nation of Lebanon and did ministry work there with the Lebanese evangelist. At the time, Lebanon was occupied by the Syrian army and their control was quite repressive. The two men were driving in a van loaded with boxes of Bibles to do ministry on the other side of that small country. They were bringing these to help that ministry there. 
On the way, they were stopped at a military checkpoint, and this American apologist was incredibly anxious, and he became even more so when the Syrian stuck a rifle in their face and yelled, What is in this van? The Lebanese evangelist calmly replied to the great horror of the American, Oh, nothing but boxes of dynamite. Then, handing the shock soldier one of the Bibles, he boldly explained, Here is what I'm talking about. Read this, and it will break into your own life with God's own power. And that's what it does, friend. God's word is dynamite. It is living and active, sharp and penetrating, revealing and exposing. And I praise God for that. We need that so badly. We need that so badly. That is our only hope of surrendering our sinful selves to the mercy of a great Savior. Let the word of God convict you so that you stop toying with sin and enter into God's rest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word from Hebrews 4. It's convicting and I do hope helpful. I pray for any who have not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who have been coming or maybe are here just this morning for the first time and have been on the outskirts looking in, wanting to know what Christianity is about. May they see the glory of what Christ has done and the weight of their own sin. Turn from it today and run to salvation in the name of Jesus. He died to save us. He rose to conquer sin. And we are all living testimonies of his work in us. So I pray that there would be salvation today for those who need it. I pray there would be conviction of sin for Christians who are walking in it, that they would put it off and turn from it and strive to enter that rest. May they reveal by their life that they are in the family of God. I pray, God, that your word would do its convicting work and that we would rejoice in that as we see what God wants us to see, as he exposes what needs to be exposed, as he works on our hearts and conforms us into the image of Christ. I pray, God, that your holy word would have its effect and that we would be saved and sanctified today. In Jesus' name, amen.